0: This is a Pivotal Conversations podcast. Businesses, they don't care about the people, but we do. I only heard another story this morning about their friends had, had to close down f 45 studios and founders are buying $80 million houses in Sydney or apartments. Your mum and dad local guys here who have put their balls on the line and they've lost it all. I was 20 grand in debt to my father. He'd been paying off my travel credit card but we didn't realise how much it had got up to and, until we both
1: sat down and went, holy shit, it's, we're at 20 grand here. Do you think we'd be sitting here right now if you didn't have a father that backed you like that? No, no way. At the start as well, I was like, if I stuff up here, how the hell am I going to pay this back? What I would want to know is how'd you spend the money then? And no. if you had the money again, how would you spend it now? So, yeah. I probably would have... What it really means to live like golden Aaron welcome to the podcast thank you Carl. we're going to start with something that I was personally interested in this what's something not a lot of people know about you that you think has played a pivotal role in shaping not only just the person you are today but the business owner that you are today and that's probably a rat laugh for you straight off the bat but I, I I'm very interested to kind of understand this I learned
0: very on, very early on what my strengths were and what my weaknesses were, and I chose to ignore my weaknesses and focus on my strengths. I don't think I'm very good at many things, but the one thing I knew I was very good at was relationships, but more specifically, making people warm to me no matter what I thought about them. So, and this came back down to my first ever gym instructor slash personal trainer role in a big gym institution out in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. When my manager at the time, Pam, always shout out Pam, my first three weeks, I had like five shifts a week or something. And she's like, all you have to do in these shifts is go and talk to people. You can't train them. You can't write programs for them. And uh, as a 19-year-old, 20-year-old guy, shat myself. I think for the first shift I hid in the toilets. And then eventually I was like, you know, built myself up and my courage out to just slowly walk up to people. And the beautiful thing was I was selling nothing because I wasn't allowed to. Couldn't even sell it. I couldn't even sell a one-on-one free session i literally just had to sell myself sell my personality um and it was about asking the right questions listening and really getting people to open up about themselves quickly and then you know when people talk about themselves they naturally think that you have an interest in them um, and they like you faster so that was probably something that i learned very on why well, i'm in service as
1: well service-based business um, so you weren't a confident person, say, you know, when you first first started out? I was confident in what I knew and,
0: and in my zone, but walking up to a random person was not my comfort zone then. I cared too much about what they would have thought about me, but when I realised it's got nothing to do with me, it's got to do with them, um, that's
1: when things changed. It's such, a, it's such a great skill and I think you only learn... From experience like I'm, a, I'm an xpt as well yeah. you know so in my early days and and that is something that i you know um am very grateful for as well is that you know the especially back in those, those days before social media was really a big thing it was very much like the way you picked up clients was out on the gym floor 100%. whether it was training for yourself and connecting and having conversations whether it was the ability to go up someone and potentially be rejected you know like oh they'll tell you to piss off (laughs) you know some people did that um I feel like it's such a great skill there's actually and then there's like another one was like one of my professors um or like lecturers at uni I was studying marketing I only did it for half a year I hated it but one of the things that I was great was like he actually made us get up in front of the class every class and you'd have to say a, a one minute speech yep. about something awesome. And I just found like like those that skill of like the ability to kind of to dip, first of all to be rejected and to keep going, mm-hmm. um, but second of all to uh, you know be able to communicate and get someone to to like you and build a connection from nothing is yep. just such an important skill. Yeah, repetition
0: and do it over and over again. That's the only way to get better at something. So
1: fast forward to the very start of kx uh i'd love to hear about the startup story and more importantly the hundred and twenty nine thousand dollar loan that you took out that you know was the very beginning because i feel like taking out i mean look taking out a loan for a business is probably something that you know your parents or the people around you can often tell you you shouldn't be doing this mm-hmm. or there's too much risk associated so i'm definitely keen to dive into that with you yeah sure
0: so i'll start in london because that's where the style of dynamic pilates i found the style um fell in love with it and knew and if you want to go back as well let me know but it, i knew then that i was always looking for something to bring back to australia I was always searching for the business that i would open Um, My father was in business for 45 years, so always grilled into me that business was certainly a way to get ahead in life. So I always knew that I wanted to do my own thing, and it made me a terrible employee. So, yeah, I learned all my skills at that gym and stuff like that, and and in a few other other, uh, places of work. But, um, you know, in my head was the harder I worked, the the more the guy at the top would make. So I just never worked hard. So, but. The, f- the first real job I loved was this, this um, you know, dynamic Pilates studio that I, that I found in, in London. And I Aussie guy greeted me at the door. He was the head trainer. Um, little did I know, six weeks later, he'd go and start his own competing studio. Um, but I just loved the style of fitness. I loved uh, Pilates. I'd, it was physiotherapy based in Australia at the time. Every physiotherapist had a Pilates studio. Matt Pilates was boring and dull at the local Fitness First or, or the big box gyms. Uh, Reformer Pilates in fitness wasn't there. So they, you know, the music was cranked, the The clientele were already fit and health conscious, which was great, because I'd been in the, the, the personal training world where you'd write a program out for someone and they'd they go and binge all weekend and you'd just be this monotonous cycle of trying to get your clients good success. But a lot of them as well just wanted to tell you about their lives and almost be a glorified psychologist in some sense. So the world of personal training was what not what I wanted to do. And I just loved this. So I just knew that I would go back to Australia. Um, it was April of 2009, uh, the sun was shining in London, which doesn't happen often. Everyone, it was like 16 degrees, everyone was in the parks in their bikinis, getting their white bodies somewhat sunned. And I just looked around, and I was like, I'm done. I need to get out of here. So I went home, um, I moved back in with my parents uh, in southeastern Melbourne. I was driving my dad's car. Um, I was 20 grand in debt to my father. He'd been paying off my travel credit card, but we didn't realise how much it had got up to until we both sat down and went, holy shit, we're at 20 grand here. And I knew that I wouldn't go back into fitness until I had my own studio. So I went back into the gaming and bar world that I was in, bartending and stuff. I lasted three weeks, hated it sat my old man down and was like, this is what I want to do, this is my passion um, and I think it's got some legs and with the entrepreneurial spirit my father had in wanting me to start a business, um, he's like, righto, let's do it. So made me write a business plan, which was the shabbiest piece of paper I'd ever written up in my life. Went into his business um, manager's office and he guaranteed my first business loan, 129000 for... His collateral was our family beach house. So I'm one of five kids. I'm the youngest of five kids. My sister's 13 years on me. So um, there's a big gap between uh, um, the heist and, and myself. But that was a beach house that they bought when I was born. So I'd been in the family for, tw- what was that, 25 years at the time. Um, so there was a lot riding on on that loan. But, and and at, the, at the start as well, I was like, shit, if I, if I stuff up here how the hell am i going to pay this back because in your head it's like well you've got to pay the back bank back 130 grand it's not like no that's over five years and you can probably go and get a a normal job and and pay the difference back if shit really went south but not only was the whole thing with my father um, to prove to him that i would be successful but it was to my family as well because of
1: this beach house I was riding on it do you do you think we'd be sitting here right now if, if you didn't have a father that backed you like that
0: no no way and he was a very very risk adverse person so um i was also really lucky that i obviously did a pretty good job convincing him of um the success that it that could come of it also i saw in london that we were the first studio in london um the style originated in la and by the time i'd left london two and a half years later there were 15 studios under five different brands. And they were all because of our trainers going out and starting their own business because our boss at the time in London didn't want shareholders or business partners. So I learned a lot in in London what not to do in business as well. But I think that success that I saw the growth, and everyone was doing the same thing, just with a different spin on it. And funnily enough, that guy who trained us up and, and, and became our competition, he trained us up really poorly knowing that he was gonna go and be the competition so i was actually really lucky that i had my fitness and my science background and my personal training and my obsession for fitness as well that we just got better and um yeah
1: because i i want to like i i actually really would love to touch on that initial period because i feel like that is just so important like you know think about for every you know for for you getting backed by your father and and you know that trust and more importantly care but also the entrepreneurial spirit there's probably 10 others that the father sits down and says no like that's not we're not doing this and I feel like there's such an important element there that risk is heavily associated with reward and that they're you know you know like and 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 the other side of it is, is I'm, I think we're going to get to this, but you know, you've been in business now for, what, 13 years, 14 years? Yep. I'm sure along the journey there that there was some tough times and there's some times that you know genu- genuinely tested you, which we'll, we'll go into. But I- I'd love for you to touch on just that and how important that was for you and then some of the feelings you had post, right? So what was day one like? You know, the loan's in, then what? Well, the loan's in. And I got the
0: loan like July, August 2009 and I opened the studio February 2010. So when the loan comes in, you kind of forget what I did. I forgot about the what if I fail sort of thing at the time. It's kind of like let's go shopping. Yeah. Let's build this studio. Um, really close friend of mine built my first studio, um, which, was, which was great. So saved on costs there. Um, my sister had some furniture in storage, so my reception desk was her glass dining table. Uh, my couches were her, her couches, these bright red, uh, she might disagree, but ugly things, super comfortable. Um, and I, at the time, I thought this studio was awesome. Looking back now, if I showed you photos of my first studio on day one versus what studios look like now, you'd be like, how the hell did anyone walk into your studios. Boutique fitness back then did not exist. Let, let, let's rewind to 2010. So you've got the big box gyms dominating, 24 seven gyms were huge. Um, jets had just sold. So they were at 200 and something. So people were paying 12 bucks a week for fitness. Um, and that was the expectation then. So here I was, I overpriced us also at the start at like high 30s for a class. So. So after a couple of months, dropped that. But <clears throat> here I am saying, hey, come and do a boutique class of Reforma Pilates for $30 instead of going to your gym for 12 bucks a week, and you can go unlimited there. So first of all, what is Reforma Pilates? The Reforma machine was used as an advanced tool in rehabilitation Pilates. So everyone was like, I've got to do Matt Pilates first before I do a Reforma. Or most people were like, what the hell is Reforma? So this, no one had a clue... Um, what reform of Pilates was, what fitness Pilates was. So we had to, you know, we threw out that dynamic Pilates was was the word in London, but what does that mean here? It means nothing. Um, I was lucky to link with 2xU times you or 2xU, as, as most people call them here, who are high-performance athletica. So, uh, you know, I kind of morphed the name into high-intensity, high high-performance high Pilates, which had a bit more of an understanding. But the education behind what we were was incredibly difficult. Um but let's go to day one. I made the studio perfect in my eyes. How'd you
1: spend the money? That's what I, I want just to, build, I I'm like, I, I want to know what I would want to know is how'd you spend the money then? And yeah. if you had the money again, how would you spend it now? Cause I feel like that is the lesson. You know, like I'm sure back then there was a lot of it could have been wasted. You might have you might have nailed it, but that's what I'm keen to kind of run through.
0: No, the studio was super, super lean. So, but, it, but I probably would have done the same again, but I had no idea about business. So you laughed about, <clears throat> you gave up marketing in six months. When I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur and have my own business, I changed all my science courses to accounting, finance, marketing, university. I failed all of them in the first semester and then changed everything back to exercise, physiology and the love of fitness. So I had zero idea about business. Um, I was so obsessed with making the studio awesome. uh, A week before I opened I caught up with a colleague who runs an education business and Pilates here and he's like, how's your presale going? I looked at him dead straight and I said, what's a (laughs) presale? I had no idea. My first, so I I didn't market the studio whatsoever. I opened the doors the first day, no one walked in. (laughs) I was at the front of the studio handing out flyers. ...because I was so busy getting the studio ready, I just was like, I'll figure it out later. I just need to get the studio right for when people walk through the doors. Um, and, and then when no one walked in, I was like, shit, now I've got to do this thing called marketing. Um, and so that was scary going, holy shit. But it was exciting because I knew from my experience in London as well... ...and also in, in, the, in the personal training in the gyms, that if a client could walk in the door or when the client would walk in the door, i would provide such a good experience and I would make them love me um, that then they would go out and tell their friends. And then they'll bring more friends back and I'll do the same and vice versa. And that's basically how I built the studio. Like I'm still really close friends with one of my first ever clients. She just walked past the studio doors on Glenfrey Road in Malvern and was like, what's this? And walked up. And even to this day she laughs because she, she thinks I was rude to her the first day But um, I booked her in for a one-on-one and then we hit it off and it was great. Um, But not that I was rude to her. I wouldn't be rude to anyone. But um, I think she was having a bad day, let's say that. But um, I I did everything I possibly could. I did flyer drops. I did local newspaper um, advertising. Um, You know, this is also the day when we had no booking system. So I was taking bookings via an Excel spreadsheet that I typed up. Um, I would take reservations over the phone or via email um facebook didn't have marketing back then so it was a grind it was really really hard um yeah so if you want to dive into anything there i could talk about that first year for a long well, i think
1: time. like I, I mean look 100 percent. i think the early days of business you, you kind of just you know you try to run through brick walls so it's like a problem comes all right we solve that and then it's just on to the next one until you kind of start to build a bit of momentum and then uh you know you're kind of almost developing a system right and that's once you've got a system in place it allows you to start thinking about the future I think that's the the hardest thing is like um I guess like one thing that I've I'm I'm interested in is oh like I think the, the thing about franchising that is really interesting is, you know, obviously in the beginning you, you're figuring it all out, but you end up having to master it. You know, if you want to build a franchise, you really have to master it. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, there's probably potentially some of our community out there that have either launched a new business, um, they've, you know, whether it's in, you know, fitness or not you know whether it's location dependent or not whether it's you know it could be retail whatever it is but what I'm interested in from yourself is what have you learned right since that time that you can kind of relay back and go yep this is what I would do differently or this is the things you really have to understand and know um to go from say you know what does it take like or we could even preface it this way what does it take to build one location extremely well and extremely profitable yep and then we can maybe talk about what it takes to get to multiple and weave that into yeah. your story a little so, bit. So let's talk about revenue for a second and I'll give you a bit of a snapshot.
0: An average KX studio now earns approximately 45 to 47,000 a month in revenue. My first 3 month I still have my first 3 months bass. <laughs> the total revenue in the first 3 months was $6,000.
1: Oh my god.
0: I opened February 2010 so I slowly went up and up and up. I remember January of 2011 15,000 was my month. But then something came along which was also great timing to the success of KX which was a group buying platforms. Mm-hmm. The jump on it's the scoop on just sold for 42 million. It was the most successful Australian sale and whatever I don't think it worked out well for them in the end but it was like 10 months in business. Whatever it was. But the the group buying platform, A, it was one of those things was like five sessions for $29. I got screwed on the back end because I think they gave me like $9 of those 29 That's why these companies were so successful. But what it did was someone like me who didn't have huge marketing budgets, these databases I had were massive and they were filled with affluent women aged between 25 and 50. Bang my target market. So all of a sudden I got what I think free advertising, and my studio's wasn't full. So if I had, and I paid the trainer, as we still do, we pay this trainer the same amount, whether there's two people in the class or there's 14. So because my, my studio wasn't full, I could fill these studio my studio, one studio at the time, with these jump on it, scoop on people, and once again, provide a great experience. They could go nowhere else to have the same experience with KX, because there was no one else doing this at the time. and then literally we doubled our revenue in one month. So February 2011, we were at 32,000 or whatever it was. And that's when it was like, okay, now people know about us, now we've got a business. And that's when I really started profiting. So it took me basically 12 months to profit. Um, and then the studio kicks off. Cause once the studio is running, even today, oh, and I also say as well, we pre-sale now, and have numbers anywhere between 400 and 1,000 people booked in before the studio doors open. So that has a massive ramp up from day one of people coming into the studio. So very, very different to back then. As you said, we now master it. We have to master it, and we have. Well, we're always getting better and improving, but we think we do a pretty good job of it. But that was the grind that was that first year. It was slow, monotonous. I was up at 4 a.m. most mornings for the 6 a.m. class. Uh, i would sleep on the couch in the studio during the day i was teaching 40 classes a week burnout was real i still had to do the marketing the accounts the admin I had two other trainers that were like five hours a week or six seven hours a week so they gave me a bit of rest i had my sundays off from very early on just to get a bit of sanity but um you know, that first year was a grind i had to stop drinking mentally i just I had to be in that zone. I had to exercise every day to be in that zone, to be confident. Failure was at the back of my head the whole time in that first year. So I had to stay as positive as I possibly could. So these are the things in my life I look back on. Every time I need help mentally, I've got to train every day. I've got to eat clean. I've got to stop drinking, simple, because I've got to stay on top of it. That's what I did the first year, basically. Still lived at home, drove my dad's car, paid myself 200 bucks a week. And that was it. And that's the other thing as well. People think, Oh, money's coming in, awesome, pay yourself more. No, money's coming in, but taxes have got to be paid. Um, you know, work you know, cover's got to be paid, extra, blah, 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 right? It, it, yeah. Goes it goes on.
1: It's very rare that you make money in the first 12 months 100%. of a business. Like, you know, almost, almost uh, unless there's some unicorn, but, like, it's very difficult to make money, yeah. you know, substantial money um, yeah. or, or, or any in general. So that was one studio. One Studio, I find that really interesting. I think there's a really great lesson there around distribution, right? And like in, in your in your case, it's the, the Groupon. Now you're taking the hit up front, but, you know, I think the idea is, is that you can have the best product in the world if nobody knows about it, you're in trouble. Um, and it also talks to like a go-to-market strategy, right? Which is like, you and, and even kind of thinking about the contrast between say, <laughs> go-to-market strategy, which didn't exist in 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 um, uh, location one or, or you know the first studio compared to you know I'm pretty sure right now there'd there'd be a, a pretty um, detailed and, and purposeful go to market strategy for every studio that you launch. Yep. Can you touch on that a little bit? Because yep. like, in like what that go to market strategy looks like now. Yeah. So
0: again, we learned so many lessons from even those scoop one days. Yeah. Right? What and and this is the market research that was coming around the world. Why five sessions? Why don't you give out one or two? Five sessions, A, holds the client to come back. If they have a bad experience, they've got four sessions. They might not have liked one trainer. We've got multiple trainers with multiple different personalities. Um, $29, sweet spot. Under 30 it's not crazy money. Um, So it's more now because of Boutique Fitness has grown. But we, we do have like five sessions for... $40 40 or $50 now, um, which is a little bit cheaper than our actual intro offer. But again, that five sessions, I think we're, we're even trialling and, and testing around the three sessions now as well. Um, we're always trialling and testing. But again, holding value to go, right, um, you've got a short validity of two weeks. Come and try us. And then it's the follow up, right? It's the phone call to say, hey, how'd you go? We're not selling you anything here, but we just want to know how your first class was. Did you like Tracy? Was she a great instructor? You know, what sort of personality do you want when you when you when you want to work out? You want someone soft, you want someone loud, you know, we can cater for all of that sort of stuff. So come back in, I'll book you in on Friday. You've still got four sessions left, blah, blah. If you didn't like it, majority of the time they love it and it's great. Um But that's still, that's still to this day, our pre-sale strategy is a discounted pack. Roughly between three and five sessions where the client has between fourteen and again we're trialing even thirty days now to come in to trial us. Nothing's ever for free. Can't devalue the brand, devalue the offering. Um there has to be put a value on, on what we offer. Because um, they have to
1: show up too. Gotta show up. That's what you guys need. From what you're saying, it's like they have to get there they have to there has to be an accountability there for them to come to at least two to three Correct. sessions because that's the stickiness.
0: And we sell the workout by them coming, like people come for the workout at KX, they stay because of how they feel when they leave. They're a part of a community very quickly. We get to know them very quickly. Yes, we teach a generic class, 12 to 14 people, but we individualize it so much and we personalize it so much that, um, you know, while they're doing lunges or squats or a plank, you know, we go up and help them. We change the springs a little bit. We might ask how their day was get to know them a bit more like individually. So by the end, they're not walking out. And this is what I hated back in the day in the gym. You walk past reception, they go, hi. And like, that's it. Not, hey, Aaron, how was your weekend? How's your wife, Andy and the kids going, blah, blah, blah. It's like literally you are a number. And I hated that in the gym, which is why Boutique Fitness was incredible for me because, and especially at KX, I just think we provide such a, you know, it's the Kaizen experience. We are the experience. So yeah, the workout's awesome, don't get me wrong, we spend a lot of time in our training department perfecting our workout, but how we treat our clients when they walk through the door, that's why they go out and tell all their friends to come back.
1: Team, if you're loving this episode and you wanna help support the show so that we can continue to grow and share the wisdom of amazing individuals, please remember to go hit the subscribe button. You have no idea how much it helps us. There's like a a saying, have you ever, ever like it's it's almost like when you um with you if you've got a dog and you want it to take a tablet you've got to cover it in mints and it's I think there's a there's a testament there to like the old you know people come for a certain reason and that's yeah. the main reason that's what you're marketing to them right but what creates the stickiness is usually something else you know it's and having something there that creates a sticky product is 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 something that I, especially in service-based businesses, I think like what people come for is usually some sort of mechanism to get them to a result, but really the reason they stay is usually for something totally different. Right. And I think figuring that out is really, really important. Um, right. Which it sounds like you guys were, you were pretty purposeful with that from the from early on. Yeah,
0: I was really lucky. I went to a a conference. Um, I was involved very, very short time in in my late teenage years in a multi-level marketing company. Didn't work, lost a bit of money. Um, but I went to one conference in, in Las Vegas. I saw the late Jim Rohn, who's no longer here. But one quote that stuck in my head was, care more about your customers than you do from the money you'll make from them, and you will be successful. And I literally think about that quote every single day. Um, money is second in, in the world of kx yes yeah, a business yeah we ma- we make money and that's very important but we care about our clients more and that's how everyone is treated from head office staff to trainers to clients um the people are number one
1: yeah and uh, like i uh, i uh, the re- like and, and yes like 110 and i think like there's also strategy to that as well right absolutely you know like and i think that's in service-based business or anything to do with people like if you just think about what you just said and you put those people first and you focus on them, money's a secondary to that. And not to say that it's not important or anything like that, which I think people can get caught up in, but it's like, no, that like you will make a lot of money yep. if you just deliver on your promise and make that person feel good, yep. you know? And I think like that's the base level, you yep. know? And, and it's, a, it's crazy how, I think even I've probably recognized this as I've gotten a little bit older, but it's more like, the amount of businesses that just don't do that, right? It's like, you know, and and you know, probably put my hand up at some stage in business that that was probably me as well. But it's like just delivering on your promise, holding your word, and then making someone feel good can literally make you a ton of cash. Yep, um, absolutely. So interesting. I'd love for you to touch on. So you you mentioned something before which I really love to talk about because I feel like it's something that doesn't get talked about a lot but it's unit economics um, and you mentioned before that you paid your staff members the same amount but you your classes weren't full and you know I just catch on to that because I understand how important that is and obviously there's a build-up phase I'd love for you to talk about path to profitability with with locations and and um, uh, with studios and also just how the important the unit economics are in the business because like that's something that catches a lot of business owners out um you know and i'm sure that you've there's been tough times as it relates to that kind of stuff and and obviously you know being a um being in franchises it's you know it's probably a big big focus for you guys as well yep numbers are everything and that's probably my biggest weakest
0: point so my advice is to get a bookkeeper as early on (laughs) as possible my good accountant my, my my biggest yeah bookkeeper accounting um my biggest hate was sitting down with my old man in those first year, two years and doing the books every month. It was like I dreaded it. And as, as funny as it sounds, like our franchise partners and our, our operations team and managers are so across the numbers now. It's incredible. It's like these are all the steps you need to do to become successful and still we have some franchise partners who choose not to do, some or all of them. And obviously they're not doing as well as the ones that, that, are, that are doing it. Um, but I never looked at numbers back in those days. I was like, I looked at client numbers and if there was more clients coming in this week than there were last week, I was doing all right. And probably because I, I, there was that fear of failure that I didn't want to see the numbers. Every month I looked at the numbers, but of course every month's too late. You can't fix anything. <laughs> so... Um, But to me, back in those days, I was just working and doing anything I possibly could to drive awareness and and the business. Um, But I mean, how deep you wanna go, we're basically, um, we we look at anywhere between 30% is the rent, 30% is your your cost of service, and then 30% is profit. So low revenue businesses, um, in terms of fitness studios, but high oh, profitability. Yeah,
1: and you can you can you can do that. And correct me if I'm wrong, because you're delivering the same thing over and over again, correct. right? It's a you're very process orientated.
0: Yeah, and the system delivers most of that. So the booking system, the CAG system, you know, clients book, pay, schedule, cancel. Everything online. The reporting on the back end is incredible for our for our franchise partners. We've got um, you know incredible wizards in head office now, and the tech space that that pull everything into BI and all that sort of stuff now. So well past my skill set. That's what's great about running a business. You start employing people a lot smarter than you. Um, but yeah, it, it's numbers that are really really important. And and it, because I was not across the numbers as well. Um, and there was also, back in the day, I was like 2.12, 2.13, a handover of bookkeepers. Um, you know, I ended up getting the shit, owed the ATO a lot of money. Just, um, you know, I think there was even a, a, a crazy payment that went into my super that was wrong, that we had to, you know, I was end up gonna pay high tax on. Like, there were so many mistakes made back then, but there were a few times where it's like, holy shit, we might be in trouble here because of the mistakes made by, you know, some individuals who, um, nothing dodgy, but just was overlooked. Um, and because I wasn't across it as probably as much as I should have been, um, you know, things, things were missed. And, yeah, like, thank God the ATO accepts payment plans because um, that certainly was, was something that happened then. And then, again, poor advice through poor accountants back in the day too put me behind a little bit as well. Um, so, you know, I, I highly advise now... Um, once again, the classic case of if if you've got something wrong with your body, you don't go to a GP, you go to see a specialist if it's a specific thing. Well, once again, there's 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 specialists out there who do franchise accounting, there's specialists out there who do franchise law. You know, the classic case is is a franchise partner going, oh my dad's a lawyer, he's in he's in real estate law. You know, he'll just look over our contracts, and all of a sudden you get this 70. 17-page document of everything that they want changed in the franchise agreement. It's like, well, hang on a minute. This is pretty much fixed here. Everything has to be uniform for the franchise. And there's things that I don't understand. So, again, getting that special advice is hugely important. But this is the
1: stuff I didn't know back then. And so when did you make the decision to franchise? Probably in London.
0: Before so you, you KX knew started. starting that
1: first one that you were going to franchise? Because I told you
0: those 15 studios opened out of five companies. The I'm going to say arrogance here. Um... Obviously there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance, but I think the arrogance of a trainer, oh, certainly back in those days, is they want their own things. They want to do their own thing eventually. They think they can do it themselves, if not better. I certainly did. I was going into that studio in London, and because we rarely saw our boss, we were the faces of that business. You know, but little did we know about business of all the stuff she was doing behind the scenes. Um, so... When she turned away clients who were interested in opening a studio, trainers who were interested in opening a studio, and then they just became competition, I was like, right, there's gotta be a better way here. So fast forward 13 years of 110 studios, um, half of our network is clients who, they're already brand ambassadors, and um, they have no idea about teaching Pilates, but they might've come from corporate, had some kids, wanted their own business, um, they might be specialists in marketing or, or another field like that. So that's that's where their domain sits. And then the other half of our network are trainers, exactly like me, had no idea about business, but incredible people, pers- uh, personalities, and they're really relatable and their clients love them. Like I've got guys who you can put them in any location and they will just attract people because their classes are amazing, their personalities are beautiful, um, and that's why people come back is for the people. So that's and, but, but again they had no idea about business. So what a perfect way is that this franchise space. We, we teach people how to run a business. We've got the, the methodology, we've got the steps, the startup manuals, the, how to build a studio, what to look for in leasing, all that everything is there. Plus you've got everyone to help you along the way, which is what I didn't have in the beginning, which is really, really cool too. And there's nothing better than a franchise partner coming to us going, you know what? Or even a master partner. I I wanted to do this on my own, but I realized I didn't want to. I wanted to be a part of something. I wanted the assistance and guidance
1: and and network that you guys provide. What was the inflection point for you? Right? Where you, you know, you've really seen growth? Like, you know, you is there a point that you look back on and go, yep, yeah, that was. Maybe it was the year, maybe it was like the the point in time, but you just said, yeah, like we really catapulted on the back of that. And I'd love for you to touch on maybe some of the things that helped.
0: Yeah. So we talked about Studio One. Studio Two was a bit of a, I'd say facade. I was like, this is what I started learning about marketing. I was like, if I open Studio Two, people will think that the brand is doing well. (laughs) And people will think that the Studio Two has been opened off the back of Studio One Success, which was incredibly incorrect. I just went back to my bank manager and said, I want to open Studio Two, and my father guaranteed my second loan or might have just bolted it onto my first. Um, so we opened Studio Two in Port Melbourne, in 2011, 18 months later. So, and again, that whole group on stuff was booming then. So again, we did a pre-sale for the second studio. Uh, with Scoop on again or, or Jump on it, or one of them. Um, and again, it was, it was a success. Then I got to the stage where I'd been doing it in London for three years. I'd been doing it in Australia for almost two. I was getting a little bit sick of the day-to-day running of a studio. At the same time, a trainer of mine came to me and she's like, I want to get involved. How do I get involved? And I hadn't done all my franchise documentation yet. We were not franchisable, so I was like, "Righto, we're going to go to a partnerships. Um, three studios, twelve months. I'll do everything leading up to opening the doors. You run the day-to-day of the business." She was fresh. Um, she was a bit of a socialite back at those times, especially in Richmond. Uh, she had links to the the um, the Melbourne Storm, so a lot of people knew her. First studio was on Swan Street. Cash flow positive in four weeks. Incredible, uh, and then. Camberwell, Brighton, once again, two affluent areas were successful really, really quickly. So proof of concept worked single studios, proof of concept worked in joint partnership studios. That's when also it enabled me to step back and start the franchise documentation, which it took me probably six to nine months with all the legals. I had consultants coming in literally picking my brain about how to open a studio, close it, what to say on the phone, all that sort of stuff to write the manuals. Which, by the way, was probably the most terrible franchise manual in the world. Um, which my wife, uh, girlfriend at the time, said realised. <laughs> and she's like, right, i got to get in on this because this is my specialty. Systems, processes, marketing, that's my jam. And we love um, that
1: too. We absolutely love that, yeah. When, when the wife steps in, we know yeah, it's a yeah. good thing.
0: Yeah. Well, it was like I didn't want to be told what to do but I knew that that was – certainly not my skill set and um you know she's worked alongside me ever since and and has done an amazing job um and we can certainly touch on her uh, as much as you'd like to later but so that that was uh that was five six studios because i opened another company studio by that stage when i started franchising sold my first three franchises in 2013 but the real pivotal moment was probably we moved to sydney in 14 to launch the flagship studio myself and my wife andy in surrey hills And that's when she sat me down and she goes, right, I just don't want to work for you anymore. I want to put my money on the line. So that was her studio that she opened. And she dominated, did really, really well. But I think it was 15, 16, we went from like 17 studios to 34 in 12 months. I think it was like, no, 17 studios we opened in 17 months. And that's when I was like, right, now we're, now we're on. And it was always. I did a lot of work with the, in the franchising community and learn a lot from franchisors in Australia. Um, and they're like, you make your money between your 10 and your 30. If you're a mum and dad franchise and you want to stay in the franchise, if you're going to grow more than that, then you need to start building a team. But that's when you know you're, you're onto something and you're not going to make much money when you're building your team, but you know that once your team is built blue sky afterwards.
1: what would you attest to say that that like run me through the the month you're opening studio monthly right which is you know 17 studios i think you said in 17 months was it yep is that on the back of just finding product product market fit is it on the back of the operational system just really you know churning into gear you know like in terms of the refinement of it and just really hitting your straps as a as an organization like what do you what what was it purely like head down we're going for this like what would you attest to that that period of time
0: that is my initial five original franchise partners realizing they were onto something good profiting quickly buying multiple sites and Mm. back then I sold territory so they were buying up territories buying space almost um land in in Melbourne and also I had Three of them moved with me to Sydney to get blue chip locations in Sydney the Belmains, so the, up the Mosmans, mm. yeah. Yep. And on that as well, um, when you've got that success, we're talking about PR before. Um, we did a lot of PR back then about growing the brand and emerging. I did a lot of stuff with the emerging franchising world. Um, I sat on the franchisor board of Melbourne for the Franchise Association of Australia just did as much as I could in that space to really get going. Um, But again, it was all internal growth. It was clients coming to us, trainers coming to us and our current franchise partners at that time going, I want more, I want more, I want more. And we all overworked, we all burnt out. uh, We all learned our lessons, um, but we were obsessed with it. All of us were obsessed with it. We would work 14 hour days minimum. Um, You know, this is before kids uh, and, you know, we had such a really close network of franchise partners. We were we would sit down and collaborate closely. These are the things you can't do now in a big brand. Um, there's too many personalities involved and it's very much followed the system. Yes, we've got certainly advisory groups. We bring in ideas and, and do that. But back in there, we used to like sit around a table and go, right, what's our next campaign going to be? Um, and collectively come up with brilliant ideas to, to hit the market with. And, um, you know, that was the really exciting stage of growing a franchise. And I loved that because A, the, the model was proven. Um, we were making money. They were making money, which meant I was making money. Everyone was happy. Um, we were collaborating. Communication was incredible because it was small. And that's where my specialty sat with relationships and really close relationships. It was when this, the franchise started growing more that she started falling out of place a little bit more. And um,
1: what, What's the challenge there? So, like, obviously the next phase is what you're talking about. So that to yeah. 17 to, or was it 15 to 30 or 10 to 30 you mentioned? Yeah. You know, you're now at 110. So what changes beyond that and what are the challenges that come with that? Um, yeah,
0: absolutely. Um the challenges come with hiring a team and I was never a good manager nor did I ever want to be and franchising is really weird, right, and I think it's the hardest business methodology to get your head around because their royalties or their support fees come into head office and then we employ people out of that money. You're making a margin. You've got to make a margin Make, on make the a margin. margin. But then that is the team that then goes between myself at the time and them. So all of a sudden I had these people, and at the time we, we could only afford juniors too. So we had these, these people come in who had never owned a business before, who were operational managers, then going to their studios going, right, this is what you're doing right, this is what you're doing wrong. And these guys now had multiple studios. They were successful in their own right. They were making more money than I was as a franchisor. And then to have a junior come in and go right, you know, you're not doing this right, or take that poster off the wall. It was, you know, butt heads. Don't tell me what to do. I've been here doing this a lot longer than you have. Blah blah blah. Um, so that was the that was the struggle. Um, but I, and I knew I couldn't I couldn't hold. You, you, you can't. You get to a stage in a franchise where you can't have that personalized connection. Nor do you want to. You want to go out and do what like. Myself, innovation and, and growing the brand and going to different states and looking at international, all the other stuff that comes with growing a business, you can't be there for your original five anymore. You, you've got to employ people to, to step in. So the business that's
1: requires a, something different from you. Correct.
0: Yeah. And my passions for business change too as well. Like, Don't get me wrong, I love it when franchise partners are opening new studios and changing their lives um financially and the dream that they've always had about opening a business that that's never going to go but the operational day-to-day of assisting them and helping them you've got to employ people to, to go and do that and that's the hardest thing that's the hardest thing.
1: how did you fix it
0: i quit um in a nutshell uh, i quit being ceo um wow that's such a
1: powerful <laughs> comment when yeah. you say you quit so you step back because you thought, you, you, you probably realised that the business needed something, someone in that that can... I got out of my own way. It's yeah, probably a nicer. Okay. Uh, we talked about before about
0: the strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and again, I was at this seminar where it's like, if you focus on your strengths, you could get 500 times better than them. But if you focus on your weaknesses, you might get one or two times better than them. So I was like, cool. What am I good at? What do I love? And running a franchise business at that stage wasn't it. Um, I went to court with one of my franchise partners in 2016-17, which was kind of the pivotal marker of going, this is not for you anymore. Um, Lack of communication basically led to it. It could have been handled so many other ways. Poor advice as well along the way, legally, that that was disappointing. But, um, and it was something that probably could have been sorted out, you know, sitting down over a coffee, but unfortunately that didn't happen. And fast forward now, everything's fine. They're still in the network and and our relationship is back to really good but um that was the stage where was like you know what i need to go and find someone who is better at this than me and again with my within my entrepreneurial networks now i was speaking to people like i don't know the ceo that i'm going to be next year but i'm going to be that by the time it comes and i'm going to learn and develop and blah blah that wasn't me i was like i don't want to be that person i'm not good at this job um i still love my brand i love my people um but but running the day-to-day of a franchise. I still think today the CEO of a franchise is one of the hardest jobs out there because someone always has something that they're not happy about. You're putting out fires that really, at the end of the day, fast forward six months, is going to be forgotten about it. It doesn't matter. But at the time, it's like, because they've, they've put their money on the line. They've put a lot of life savings, a lot of risk. Like I had no risk back in the day when I started. These people have mortgages. They've got kids. Um, you know, as much as you want them to believe it's their business, because it is their business, they've got to work very hard to make it successful, it's still our brand and we still govern our brand. So we have that control about what they can and can't do. Um, so it's a really hard dynamic. So that's basically what I knew. And I tried. I tried to get out, had a COO who was my business coach, put him as a COO for nine months, but didn't work. Culturally didn't fit, incredible for advice, incredible for strategy, um, an analytical brain and thinking. And I learned so much off of him. We would not be international today if it wasn't for him, but wasn't the fit for our brand, almost ruined it. Um, so that was lesson number one of what not to do. And then um, Selena Bridge been our CEO now for five years, just gone last Saturday, incredible human being knew when I first met her that she would be the perfect fit, just took me three years to get her. Um, there's a story in my life where I'm just really persistent with the women in my life and eventually they, they say yes. So um, she was one of, one of those stories. So, and she's incredible. She, she came from Curves Fitness, which was the biggest fitness franchise in the world. I think they sold 10,000 globally. But she was the general manager of Australasia, Australia, New Zealand. But it was a master franchise and she wasn't allowed to change anything it was that classic american model where just do what we say we're successful we're american and it just wasn't working over here and she wasn't allowed to innovate change so eventually i convinced her right come over here and you've got freedom to do what you want and the first non-founding ceo rock and roll let's go and um best business decision i've ever
1: made takes a lot of self-awareness that i i think like i think I'm. Um and i'd love for you to talk to this is the idea of that you kind of have to push through all the time you know like as in I'm, there's a time for that and that's probably in startup land but yep. you know i think i would imagine that there comes a time where you do have to get out of your own way and sometimes you could there's probably stories out there of of people that don't right and and it caps the growth or it, you know well you, I, the thing i would say to you right is from what i find really impressive is you've made it through a cycle right like a business cycle you know and i think that there's an there's a testament to that like in terms of um you know i don't know how long the cycle is right but you know 13 years is definitely a cycle so like making it through that and maybe it is that decision to kind of get out of your own way that that allows you to do that i don't know but that's what i find pretty impressive about the business you know is that it's it's made it through a cycle You know, and and that's a hard thing to do. You know, it's a very hard thing to do.
0: In franchising, we talk about the seven-year cycle, which is really important for a franchisee, but also I went through that personally and that was really that seven, eight years when I was like, right, time to change. Um, I think it comes back down to, though, knowing and being confident in who you are and why you're leading your business. I think arrogance comes a lot into it. Um, Wanting to be the face, wanting to be the celebrity. um, Purpose in terms of losing their identity if they're if they don't stay as the founding ceo that's a huge one like i only learned about the whole ceo thing when i went again i've been involved with eo entrepreneurs organization since 2014 so they've been incredible for me and one of their learning events was about exiting so i was like cool let's go along i don't think i want to sell but one day whatever let's let's do. and and one of the things was one of the best forms of exiting is to hire a CEO. You get all the uplift of continuing with your brand and the business that you love. You've still got your identity as the founder. You still control it because you own it. Um, Obviously, hold a a strong seat on the board, but you don't have to be in there day-to-day fighting the battles. Um, And also, if you get it right, you're going to hire someone who can catapult the business well quicker and more successfully than you could have because they have the skill set. The only negative of it is you don't get an upfront payment for exiting. If 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 that's what you're after. And that was a massive light bulb moment for me. I went, you know what, this is awesome because I, I love what I what I did or what I do. I um I, like this is my first baby and still is. Um if if you're not aware the passion that bleeds from me for for the brand, I just um but I, I didn't want to sell it. I didn't want to give it up and I still don't so how do i continue to grow it um stop losing sleep at night from all the shit that was going on at the time and it was just the perfect win for me um and then hiring that right
1: person is another conversation and so such an interesting conversation because i feel like you often just talk about growing the business you know mm-hmm. like like if you think about success stories it's it's like grow the business and then get the exit but I feel like succession is such an interesting conversation. This might be a bit of a controversial question. You've probably seen what happened to F45 in the space. Exit, people come in, business, founders leave, business goes to shit. Do you look back at your decision now to kind of you know, I'm sure there's probably been an exit opportunity or, or you know, there's the opportunity to stay as the CEO and, and you get that big payout. The decision now for you, do you look back on that and, and kind of look at that situation and say, yeah, this was a, it's been a great decision? Uh,
0: 100% it's been a great decision. But the, if you're in franchising and fitness, you knew that was gonna happen with 45 all the time. Um, there's a big difference in franchising between longevity and bringing business partners on board for the ride and transactional franchising. And that from day one was a transactional franchise model. Um, as was Curves, which Selena was a part of. You know, they sold north of 600 units, opened 450. I think there's 65 left. Um, a lot of people made a lot of money. But what does the brand have to show for it now and again that comes back to why am i doing this and why was i doing this yeah money's great it's given me freedom lifestyle an amazing family and experiences that i can share but if it was about making as much money as i can and flogging it off to then ruin my brand there would be 800 kx studios in australia and i would have sold out four years ago but this was never the thing and it comes back to our model right In franchising, we're a percentage of revenue model. So a franchise studio um, gives back 8% of royalty to head office. So we only make money when the studio makes money, simply. So, And if I have two studios that are half full, both of them, we make the same royalty as if one studio is full. So why wouldn't you have one studio that's full and cranking and it's exclusive and, you know, the best thing is when people go, shit, I can't get into the Richmond studio, it's too busy. I go, awesome. I'm not going to open another studio, you know, a metre down the road, which is what F45 did, because they weren't that model. They were pay us a fee every month and that's a set fee and we're going to open as many as possible because that fee was also paid, whether that studio was open or not. So they were just really selling the rights to a postcode. Um, And that's why, especially in the early days, you had studios who would buy up five or six postcodes and open one or two studios. But they would still have to pay that fee on those five or six postcodes and then bring everyone in. So they were dots on a map, franchising, transactional franchising, they were making their money on that initial sale, that initial franchise fee. They gave no support because they didn't have to. It's like pay us X amount per month and go ahead. So people did make a lot of money still because the smart entrepreneurs who opened the studios, the guys who were really good at fitness relationships and there's still some really successful F45s out there because they've got great people running them. Um, but what I feel really bad for is the people that went into it thinking they were going to make a lot of money, thinking they were going to get the support, got none and obviously have had to shut
1: them down. Since then, in a simple statement, how does KX not go down the same path as F forty five? We're just in it for the long run, to be honest with you. You think it's the succession piece, right? Like I feel like that's that's something that was pretty powerful with what you said to me before. Is like there's a succession piece there. It's it's the longevity there, of the there brand because Warren let Buffett talks about that, right? Like, and there's a, there's some good principles there. Yeah, hundred percent. There is no, there is no number
0: on the wall at head office that we've got to get to, and there's no date we've got to get to a by. So our purpose is to change lives for the better, and we want to we want to do that to as many people around the world as possible. So yeah, we've got a loose number of 500 studios globally. That's our loose number. Does Selena as CEO have a time frame to get there? No. Does it matter if we don't get there? Um, I've got a great lifestyle where I sit right now and how much or little I work, how much time I spend with my family. My wife opened a KX studio in Noosa. I moved up to the Sunshine Coast last year for a lifestyle change. Um, I, my, my world is pretty incredible. The people we, we work with are pretty incredible. Um, and, and we want to see our business grow. We want to see our people grow. But we're not growing as fast as possible for an exit. Don't get me wrong, there's been plenty of an opportunity for that to happen. Um, businesses acquiring us to IPO, all that sort of stuff, you know, big American companies. Um, but it's, it's really important that we stay independent um, because I'm happy with what I've got. And I think that's the other thing about people growing a business is they're chasing something that they think that they want to make them happy or more successful or more important or whatever but it comes down to unless you know who you are and and being happy in your own skin, I was happy when I had nothing. So, um, yeah, don't get me wrong, money creates freedom and experiences and and a great lifestyle, but you need to be happy with where you sit and that's doing it for the right reasons, I think, and that's why we're not going to go down that path. And, again, being independent, if I sold even a percentage to private equity, it changes the game, Mm. you know, everything would be ripped out um, and we would be just crunched and crunched and crunched to make profit and not care about the person and, it, and it's a business and for some people businesses you know they don't care about the people but we do so it's very, very different and that's why it breaks my heart seeing and hearing I only heard another story this morning about um, uh, where I just come from, their their friends had had to close down four F45 studios. And, you know, um, FS8 was was their sub brand that they had to try and compete with the boutique Pilates space. And they had to close some of them down as well. It's, and it's really sad because that's the founders are buying $80 million houses in Sydney or apartments. Uh, and, um, you know, you've got your, your mum and dad, local guys here, who've put their balls on the line and they've lost it all. I couldn't live myself if that was me.
1: We're going to dive into the triple H uh, section of the podcast, um, which is the first one. Is tell us a, a story of hardship that you've been through in business life that you know has again played a bit of a role into the success today.
0: I I don't want to go into it, but COVID was shit. I don't talk about it much anymore because I think it's been talked about so much. Um, but really, in the 13 years of looking back, that was the hardest thing. And it was mainly because we were the first to close and we were the last to open. And annoyingly, we were painted with the same brush as fitness, where, like, everyone has their own machine in KX. They're a metre and whatever apart. We could have very easily stayed open the entire time. It gets cleaned after every single sh- after every single class. so. We were the most COVID-friendly place, I reckon, out there, yet we, we had to close. And what was probably the hardest was because Melbourne was so affected, um, our team here was dramatically affected. So we had studios in one state closing on a Sunday and studios in another state opening back on a Monday and our head office team who were working crazy hours. We could only pay them for two or three days at the time. Mm. Um, they, they grinded it out massively. And, and a lot of them aren't with us anymore in head office because they, they just got to a stage where mentally they had to move on from, it was a painful period. And I thank them incredibly for the hard work and the sacrifice that they did to keep our brand alive in those times. Um, but it sucked. To to as a controlling person as well. I still remember on the 23rd of March of when 8 p.m. when Dan Andrews locked it down. It was like the feeling of like having no control over your future um, was pretty crazy. And I, I was in London when the GFC hit. So we were like awesome. Our studios went up 30% when a recession came along because the people with money just exercised more. As you know, if I've got more time in my hand, I'm gonna exercise more. So so that that worked well for us. I never thought that. The pandemic would wipe us out mm. but um th- that taught us you know i i all, already was pretty resilient um but the lessons there of of hustling
1: uh to stay afloat in the first couple of months of that lockdown was isn't that awesome. a war story for just 20 years time crazy you know like just pandemic you know like it's just crazy to think about it even now but I'm sure it is. I
0: was on the flight last night, going. I just—it's almost gone out of your memory that you
1: had to wear a mask and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> you couldn't leave. You—you could, you could only leave your house for one hour a day, and you could only go five Ks at a time. Crazy, Nuts. Wild. Nuts. wild. Two young
0: kids. We had to throw everything online. Uh, I mean, we were there for our clients the whole time. It wasn't about making money from it; it was about being there for them, supporting them. Um, having options of online classes and Zoom classes and that sort of stuff. So, when we did open our studios, it was such a good success. You know, you, thanks, you were there for us. They came flooding back. It was incredible. Um, so, yeah, we learned a lot. Um,
1: but yeah, that was a really, really shit time.
0: There's like a hero? whole
1: chapter in my book about just the shit time that COVID was. <laughs> Who's your hero? And, and, and tell us a story that epitomizes why. Yeah, there's two. It's interesting. My old man's definitely one.
0: Um, as I said, he started his, he had a a pharmacy, but literally in the tiniest shop he started in, he scraped up enough money and got a a loan from his old boss who believed in him, put one of everything on the shelf. And I'm talking about a shop that was like, you wouldn't even see a size of this pharmacy now, like 40 square metres. It was tiny, put one of everything on the shelf. When he sold that one, he bought two. And that's like literally how he did. We lived, I wasn't even born at this stage. We lived at the back of the shop. My two sisters were young like under six um in in this tiny little wasn't even an apartment it was like literally a little bolt on premises to a to a shop but um and you know slowly but surely he built up built up built up this was the days before chemist warehouse etc dominated the market um and ended up having one of the biggest pharmacies in the southern hemisphere um in the southeastern suburbs so um and was still always there for us would 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 still take us to school and still Be home every night for dinner and our holidays were, 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 you know, nothing flash but um, was something to look forward to and um, he he worked really, really hard and and my mum was a huge support for him and for our family and so probably both my parents internally. Um, But funnily enough, externally, and it probably just comes from my transformation in my fitness uh, in my teenage years, compulsive eater, blew out to 104 kilos. That's when I found fitness and nutrition completely changed my life, changed my appearance, changed my confidence. Um, I went to my 10 year high school reunion, no one knew who I was. I looked completely different. There's photos of me in my book, you wouldn't even know it's me, it's funny. Um, But Arnold Schwarzenegger back then was big for me. And that's mainly because everything he talked about was mindset and and visualization, affirmation, and goal setting um and he's achieved
1: everything he said literally like he's i think that's the you know arnie was someone i looked up to too um but on the surface level a lot of people think that that's all about the muscles yeah. um, and maybe that's what got you into him but what keeps again it's the stickiness with him it's just like wow this guy literally set out oh, sorry achieved everything he set out to achieve He's done it all, so I big big Arnie. Yeah, yeah, um, big Arnie guy too. Yeah, we just
0: put to the side the whole marital affair thing. That yeah, yeah. Look,
1: and and uh, (laughs) I think you've seen that. Oh, look, Arnie's Arnie, but there's there's a lot of good and what he's done, and and to this day as well. And you know, everybody's got everybody makes mistakes as well. So, quick fire, one piece of advice for your younger self:
0: trust my gut more. A few times back then, you know, there were alarm bells with that COO that I talked about before. But I was like, no worries, I'll give him a go, blah blah blah. And um, it took nine months and a lot of courage. And also for founders and, and startups out there, is not to be intimidated by people who are smarter than you or bring more to the table when you're first starting out because I was intimidated, um, which is probably why he was hired, because I was intimidated to not hire him. Because he was my business coach for 18 months, gave me great advice. But from that standpoint of, okay, I think I need this person to take my business to the next level. My gut was telling me he's maybe not the right person. Um,
1: I should have just listened to my gut. Need's such a funny word, isn't it? Like it's just if you feel like you need something, you've just got to get the alarm bells going because it drives you into places that can be so detrimental mentally and but also operationally something yeah i totally agree with that what's the most important trade a founder must have for success and why
0: we've already touched on it but knowing when to get out of your own way the amount of people that tell me i'm thinking about you know, stepping aside, and I've already got this person who might be a manager or something in there. I was like, awesome. Empower them and piss off for a holiday, and I guarantee when you get back, your business will be better for it. I think employees also work better when they're not under the founder. Um, we we're, we're founders because we're good at starting businesses. We're we willfully might, blind. Yeah. Just you know, persistent. Yeah. Yeah and be honest with yourself and it's okay. I can wholly admit. And it was one of my franchise partners actually that said to me, and I, and it was, this was a huge call, was it takes really strong leadership to know when to stop leading. And that was massive for me as well. And, and it was a huge compliment to say, you know, well
1: done on stepping aside. That's powerful. Mm. Last one. If you could have one do-over, what would it be and why?
0: Yeah, so 2013, I sold my first three franchises. I had 150 grand in the bank and my entrepreneurial mind went, "Man, I don't like Pilates. Uh, Well, not I don't like Pilates. That's the wrong words. But uh, I'm a bit bored with the day-to-day Pilates. Um, So I had this big vision of KX Fitness being, I wanted to be basically like the Virgin of fitness. And I was traveling a lot back then going to america going to europe and i was like right what where else are my clients going that i'm not getting their money from um the bar method was really big so ballet bar studios in america soul cycle was really big in america boutique yoga studios were really big in australia after bikram kind of went berserk but the actual hot yoga studios were were popping up everywhere. And I was a client in all of these things because I loved doing all different parts of fitness. And I was like, right, they're not doing them the way I want to do them. I want to do it with a bit of a spin on them. So between 2013 and 16, mm-hmm. we opened six KX bar studios, which were inside of KX Pilates Studios. An incredible trainer of mine was a head bar trainer in London that I, I, um, I, I bought over from, she was also a Pilates instructor for us. So she headed up that. We opened a cycle studio, KX Cycle in Richmond. I had a retreats company out of Bali at the time. Fitness retreats four to six times a year. Uh, And I had a yoga studio, KX Yoga, that I opened. So I was like, and I told you I was selling territories to my franchise partners back then. So I was like, awesome. When these are all successful, then each territory can then have a Pilates studio or bar studio, all that sort of stuff. But I was never passionate about any of them. I liked being a client, certainly not a ballet bar, but I liked being a client of Cycle. I liked being a client of Yoga. I loved travelling in Bali, all that sort of stuff. Um, but KX Pilates was my passion. KX Pilates was already three years advanced moving into state. So it got really confusing as well because clients in, in, in Sydney were like, well, you've got KX Bar all over the website, but where's your studio? And um, and again, seeking the right advice, and I was I'm really close friends with a fantastic brand developer um and he's just like you know the virgin thing is like an anomaly and it's not normal in in business to be able to just throw a word at the end of a brand and at work um and i was like you know fuck you i'm gonna do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's always the fuck you to get you in trouble <laughs> uh so and to be honest they were all successful in their own right but they were just a distraction so i ended up um and it was a conference i went to in phoenix in 2017 where the guy from i don't remember the actual company but it was just like just cuts in australia right it was just like a, a hairdressing franchise They had a thousand or two thousand units across america and he got up there and he's like had did this whole speech about innovating within your business and not externally to it and he's like we cut hair we don't sell coffee we don't sell hot dogs we don't you know even to the stage of we don't even wash hair we cut hair and that's what we do but everything else we improve our systems our processes the way we create all this sort of stuff and I was like light bulb moment so I literally came back and I de-branded all of them um and then sold them off to incredible people who have still made them successful but as individual businesses and I focused back on Pilates and I always think to myself what would I have what could have happened with that 150,000 and the three years of energy and time focusing back on just Pilates, where would we be today?
1: And that would be it. Yeah, sometimes it's what you don't do that makes you, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Tell us about Define Yourself and the book that you've written. Um, I'm keen to, I mean, look, if the last hour and a half was a, any any insight, I think it's obviously going to be a really great book about a journey that's been pretty special, but tell us about the ...the yeah. book and, and potentially when it went... So I've been it. writing for eight years. Uh, it had been put on hold many times
0: just because I, I just wasn't finished. My my chapter hadn't ended. Um, pardon the pun. But uh, it's the it's journey of KX. It's very raw. It's very open. Um, I don't hold anything back in there. Um, but it's about how I started KX. Um, my upbringing um how fitness changed my life in the beginning travel being the most important teacher ever and what i learned through traveling Um, the adversity building confidence the freedom that it gave me it really made me into the person that i am today and lucky enough travel was the reason why i founded the, the, the style of dynamic pilates as well so i'm grateful for it coming back Um, all the stuff we've talked about today and more about the first couple of years and the early relationships and the uh, most importantly throughout the entire book is the people that yeah i founded the business and i love my business but the people involved in my business is why it's successful today from my early relationships my business partners um my franchise partners my head office staff my ceo everything is in there in terms of the people all the mistakes that I made along the way, um, expensive lessons as I call them, um, and also the innovation of where we've we've taken the brand. It's been a huge, huge journey in 13 years. Um, we're really grateful that we're still the leaders in reformer Pilates in Australia. We we got in early; it was great timing. We worked our asses off. We still do, um, and. Yeah, and we continue to grow. Um, the innovation thing, so the KX Former as well and the ideation of that, coming in, making our own exclusive um, piece of equipment with um, Balanced Body, who's the number one manufacturer in the world out of the US, was really cool. That was a great project that I'm really proud of. Um, and then I get a lot of questions about franchising, emerging franchisors coming in. Can I franchise my business? Is my business even franchisable? Um, I want to join a franchise. So basically, all of my thoughts and advice on all of those topics as well, I've thrown in there for the last couple of chapters as well. Um, awesome. And also, uh, there's a chapter of Coven, how shit that was. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's a huge, huge player uh, to my wife as well, who without her, she hates this stuff. Hates being front and center, so she's very much behind the scenes, but she's basically
1: the unnamed COO of the entire business over the last year. Amazing. Two years. Well, mate, congratulations on the success so far. Congratulations on the book. Definitely go check it out, guys. Thank you. Um, most of all, thank you for your time today. Much appreciated. Thanks, Carl.